You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Now let's talk about Andrew Fuller. Lots of resources are available. We've talked about those that are available for John Gill. Certainly they are for Andrew Fuller, too. Uh, again, in the Red Books, you'll find a biography of Fuller uh, just a few years ago. Uh, Andrew Fuller, Model Pastor Theologian by Paul Brewster. This is a reworking of Paul Brewster's dissertation. This came out in a, a series that Robin and Holman published, uh, a very good volume of, of work on Fuller by, uh, by Paul Brewster. Very, very good work. I certainly commend that to you. Uh, for looking at him serving as both a pastor and theologian uh, all the while. The works of Andrew Fuller are available in one volume, one very large volume, but this is a little bit bulky and it's not really all that um, serviceable sometimes uh, since it is all in one volume. It's large and just a little bit um, cumbersome. But the standard... uh, Fuller Works compilation is the Sprinkle Edition. It's in three volumes, uh, and you can get those. But as, as I've said before, there is a uh, um, Walter de Gruyter, um series that's coming out, multi-volumes uh, with, uh, with, with uh, commentary and so forth that a number of uh, individuals are working on even now, trying to get those prepared. So those, those volumes will start to become available in the next few years. So anyway, lots of stuff available on Andrew Fuller, and for many, Fuller is, I think, very representative of a, a warm Baptist Calvinist, or you can say a warm Calvinist Baptist, however, whatever order you want to put it in, but I think a lot of people see him as very representative of the, the best things about being a, a Calvinist and being Baptist all at the same time. Uh, lots of good things there. Again, you've got some Baptists who, who blasted him saying, hey, you, you can't preach the gospel promiscuously, uh, and yet you have uh, others in the day who, who just thought he was, was tremendous, and certainly his heart was in the right place because he helped to uh, begin the Baptist Missionary Society, the BMS, uh, with uh, William Carey. And while he didn't leave the country and go uh, to places like India or wherever, he sort of stayed home, and as we know, he held the rope uh, for Carey to be able to go and to do his work. So let's talk about Fuller for a few moments. He lived from 1754, right in the middle of the 18th century, up until 1815. So again, thinking from, Amer- from our American context, he would have passed away just after the, you know, the, the War of 1812, you know, the second conflict that we had with Great Britain, where, where it seemed as if they were uh, going to to have victory there in taking Washington, D.C. So he was an eminent theologian and missionary leader. He was a gifted pastor and a very good preacher. Not excellent. Not excellent. I've, I've written actually a paper on Fuller uh, talking about an assessment of his preaching. Uh, a couple of his biographers uh, trying to look at what they had to say about his preaching and uh, again, they had lots of good things to say, but again, sometimes just his, his own physical presence, his own physical demeanor in the pulpit did not always work to his advantage. 
and there were other things about his voice and and sometimes so much in his head that he couldn't get it all out in the course of his sermon. So lots of things that sometimes got in his way, but he was nevertheless a good preacher, if not an absolutely excellent one. He was born in Wicked, Cambridgeshire, and was the son of a farmer. His parents, like him, were dissenters and attended a Baptist church with a preacher, pastor, who was a hyper-Calvinist. We've talked about that earlier. He became dissatisfied with the extremes of hyper-Calvinism and showed from an early age that he was inclined toward theological thoughts. I mean, even as a child, he remembered hearing the, the preacher talking about uh, the restrictions that had to be placed upon sharing the gospel. It couldn't be shared freely. It couldn't be proclaimed uh, openly. And he just did not understand that. It did not make any sense to him when he read the rest of the Bible and just saw what it said there. He saw Jesus' ministry, saw the ministry of the apostles, he saw what the New Testament had to say, and just didn't. it just was totally inconsistent with him that the gospel should be withheld and, and bound up so tightly. And so he began to lead the way in a different direction. He was baptized in 1769 at uh, 15 years old. That was the same age in which Benjamin Keach was baptized. Eventually, he displayed his giftedness for leading public worship, and he was ordained and offered the pastorate of his congregation. His humble circumstances uh, formed him for the work that he was to do. Again, he was serving initially at a, a smaller church, didn't have a lot of means or a lot of resources at his disposal at that point, but that helped prepare him for what was to come down the road. And so, you know, I think we can learn something from that too, is that if the Lord puts us into a position where, you know, where we're not able to have everything we want or everything isn't as we'd like it to be, you know, we need to learn like Paul how to be content, you know, to be able to be satisfied with plenty or to be able to be satisfied if we're in want. We've got to be able to be content. Now, in 1782, he transitioned to a different ministry location, the Baptist Church at Kettering, where he remained until his death. Here he became involved in nearly every facet of pastoral ministry, including writing and helping to organize mission work. And certainly that would be uh, pivotal as he helped to give direction to. He was the secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society. It was formed in 1792. Both Princeton and Yale conferred on him uh, doctorates of divinity, but he declined to use the title doctor. He was uh, more concerned that he remain humble and didn't want to portray you know, any kind of image of uh, feeling as if he had heirs or wanted anyone to show him inordinate respect. Now, Fuller's works, all, all of his published works uh, are so large, it illustrates that vast corpus of written material uh, that he produced, and it shows his ability to write on a wide array of doctrinal and theological subjects. Uh, if you look through his works, you work through, look through his collective works, he uh, prepared like Gill, like Benjamin Keach, just like both those guys. You know, he's, he's writing essays on lots of different theological subjects. You know, just like Keach, you know, wrote on everything pertaining to church life, you know, from, from minister's maintenance, how much do you pay the preacher, writing on church polity, <clears throat> writing on uh, the Roman Catholic Church. He wrote hymns. He wrote on singing and worship. Just wrote on all kinds of stuff, as well as the, the gospel and, and uh, uh, other things about Scripture. Fuller did the same thing. <clears throat> 
So a wide array of, of subject matter in what he wrote. Dargan declares there is little warmth, meaning no heat. In other words, he's not writing to be angry or to generate anger in anyone. He is simply trying to illumine. He's trying to um, simply provide light, not heat. Uh, He also says imagination is scarcely in evidence at all. In other words, he's not uh, trying to in any way supplement this with human ideas or flights of fancy. Uh, Flights of eloquence appear nowhere. Uh, Fuller's sermons are orderly, discriminating, logical. His expositions are careful, plain, and in homily form. Okay, so they, at least in basic uh, accounts, are lining up again with that central axis of that diagram from our textbook. They, his sermons, do not have sufficient literary quality to make them standards, but they show excellent good sense and timeliness for their day. Now, certainly he's best known for his work, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. He wrote the first edition of that in 1785. Okay, then, then eventually he uh, edited that a little bit and reissued it in 1801. So, uh, it, so what you'll probably see now, for example, what is in his collected works that I have here with me is the second edition, not the first Uh, But uh, nevertheless, this was his primary work. Again, lots of things to pick from, but this is the primary work he's known for because this was really the bombshell that he dropped on the the Baptist and really the evangelical world of the 18th century, the middle of the 18th century, because he's saying, no, we must proclaim the gospel to every creature. We, We must share the gospel freely. We must issue the gospel calls openly and without restriction. We cannot hold it in. We cannot restrict it or restrain it. We cannot keep quiet about this. We have to preach the gospel. <clears throat> and when that bombshell was dropped, he got lots of response, lots of friendly fire, uh, lots of uh, people from his own camp saying, you just can't say this. Andrew, this isn't right. This isn't biblical. But he worked very hard to make clear that his position was biblical. And uh, I mentioned, too, uh, he got into a public debate. It, it, was, it was documents published going back and forth about three times on each side uh, with Dan Taylor. I mentioned him a few minutes ago as a general Baptist uh, leader, uh, kind of helped to give and serve as an organizing principle for the uh, General Baptists, who themselves were going through a, a lapsed period, they weren't organized, they weren't really uh, working together to accomplish anything, they were all just kind of doing their own thing and not really able to be coherent and, and work together and focus. So Dan Taylor brought that kind of organization to the General Baptists, and he debates Fuller. Again, you have people like Abraham Booth, staunch Calvinist, saying, Fuller, you can't say that we can preach the gospel promiscuously. You have Dan Taylor on the other side saying, Fuller, why don't you just let Calvinism go? You've already, you know, undermined this hyper-Calvinist idea. Why don't you just let the whole thing go? And they get into a discussion over most of the points of Calvinism. He talks about uh, human depravity, uh, really zeroing in on Edwards' 
uh, and and this is where Andrew Fuller was really influenced by Edwards in, in the discussion of the, the the human and the moral inability, uh, because that's how Andrew Fuller defends his stance on that. Talks with again back and forth in debate with with Dan Taylor on uh, the subject of the atonement. Uh, and this is where some see a little bit of moderation in Fuller, where Fuller begins to use the uh, the idea from this point forward that the atonement of Christ was sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. And a lot of folks like this. A lot of folks think this is, is this is a, a fair, biblical, balanced position. Uh, some folks don't think so. Some folks think that it was too much of a compromise. Some folks think that the, the whole thing has been misinterpreted. So again, it, it, you, you always have to go back to the original sources and try to understand what was being said by all the parties and what were they really trying to convey there. But nevertheless, it was a friendly debate, and that was a refreshing thing for the middle of the 19th century, for there to be really a very intense theological debate, and it really was very intense on both sides, but they were respectful of each other, basically, throughout. There were a couple of barbs traded here and a couple there, but by and large, they were very respectful, so that was a good thing and and a very helpful thing among Baptists, and really this probably fostered what you're going to see happening in the latter part of the 19th century, the formation of the Baptist Union, where largely your general and your particular Baptist sort of merge together. They lay aside some of their issues, and they work together. So you'll see that uh, if we are able to make it to that in our next lecture. Very lastly and very quickly, William Carey, a good friend of Fuller's, of course, born around the same time as him, uh, but living uh, quite a bit longer, about almost 20 years longer than him. William Carey's name is immediately associated with pioneering the foreign missionary enterprise. Certainly we know that we usually give Carey the distinction of being really the first foreign Baptist missionary. Uh, He was born in Northamptonshire of humble parentage. His father and grandfather had been parish clerks. So you think, what? Anglican? Uh, And he was himself initially Anglican, but his conversion was soon accompanied by a conversion to Baptist views, and he was baptized by John Ryland in 1773. So he would have been about 12, maybe 13 years old at that point. He pastored a small church at Moulton and was supported, supported his family by being a cobbler, mending shoes. He was a self-taught scholar, particularly gifted in learning languages. Look at, look at this, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Dutch, French, almost the whole gamut needed to not only be able to uh, work your way around the European continent, but also around Scripture as well. According to Weber, before him, before Carey, hung a map of the world, and upon it he made many annotations in regard to the people who dwelt in various lands and their religion. What Weber's trying to say is, is that uh, if, if this is true, then Carey was already at a younger age concerned about people around the globe who needed to hear about Jesus Christ. Now, after the Baptist Missionary Society was organized, he sent He went as its first missionary to India, and he never returned to England. Although not especially gifted in pulpit work, Carey excelled in a pivotal occasion. There was one occasion where he had to preach one sermon, and this made all the difference. It fell to him to preach the annual message at the Nottinghamshire Baptist Association in 1792. He had already published his tract, The Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen, and he used Isaiah 54 for his sermon text. 
His famous discourse from this sermon was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. His message left a profound impression on the gathering, and the great modern missionary movement was begun. The sermon was never published, and it's unlikely that it was ever even written out, but its effects were abundant. It is an important instance that illustrates the potential effects of just a single sermon. Uh, One other word of note here, Carey personally translated the Bible, or parts of it, into 26 languages. 26 languages. He printed and distributed Bibles in India, some 200,000 of them. Uh, So he was making the Bible available for uh, the population in India. So he was uh, hugely important at this time, again, with with the British conquest of India, trying to uh, make inroads there. Certainly his work was very important and very significant at that time in the latter part of the 18th going into the 19th century. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.